Welcome to The Legal Lunch, the legal and business podcast where we talk to the people behind the brand. We look at who they are, why they do what they do, and what makes them tick. I'm your host, Porik Grennan. Thanks for listening. Eamon Kearney, welcome to The Legal Lunch. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'll be enjoying your lunch when I get the chance. Good, good. (laughs) We've tried on several occasions to make this happen, so it's what? It's about quarter to nine on the 24th of March. That, yeah, early what, lunch. What I love about these things is that this will live forever, this podcast. <laughs> well, they say podcasts will be on Mars at some stage. That's part of it. And part of my idea in uh, being convinced by Gary Lee to do this was the whole nature of the Shana Key. Right. Um, and the storyteller. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, the generations that follow us, uh, they're less likely to write stuff down. They just don't write stuff down because really what attracted me to this was when uh, Gary was saying Eamon talk about your family that's Porrick's business genealogy you love that kind of stuff go for it and uh, that's part of where the story in the Gazette was yeah yeah no it was a very interesting one and I mean coming in here today you've showed me this is the type of thing you know detailed family trees and the way they're presented and this particular brochure here or the kind of calendar format with all the birth certs and all that sort of stuff it's fascinating so obviously you have a keen interest in it but let's get straight into the story that was in the Gazette recently the latest publication about I think it was your grand uncle my uh, grand uncle Philip J. O'Sullivan a solicitor and his father was a solicitor as well in Kinsale my great grandfather was uh, John O'Sullivan the founder of the Southern Star in Skibbereen so there's West Cork roots down there on the paternal side. And Philip O'Sullivan joined the Royal Navy at the age of 18, having lived in Kinsale. Uh, He was educated for one year in Black Rock College here in Dublin, but the rest of his life he spent in Kinsale, as many did at the time. Joined the Royal Navy and was shipwrecked in the Mediterranean, survived 24 hours clinging to wreckage. Wow. Um, he was then able to extract an Italian destroyer from a situation where it was going to be sunk by German U-boats and was awarded, uh, sorry, was commended by the King of Italy. There was a specific, specific commendation because in World War One the Italians were on the Allied side, uh, if you know what I mean. They kind of switched for World War Two when Mussolini came into power, but... Um, so here is a man who got military honours and was clearly what would be now known as a kind of a military hero. Sure. He came back to Ireland, was demobilised and qualified as a solicitor and was practising as a solicitor in 1920 down in Kinsale and at a time when many, many in the RIC, which had gone from being a policing force to something quite different because of the policy of the black and tans and the auxiliaries being brought in. And these were men from the trenches in France who really were suffering the likes of post-traumatic stress disorder. They were bullies. They were appalling crimes and atrocities being conducted by the black and tans. But Philip O'Sullivan's mother was from an RIC family. His grandfather, his great-grandfather, his granduncles, they were all RIC men. He joined the RIC and in uh, October 
of 1920, was promoted to district inspector. In December of 1920, he was outside number 29 Henry Street here in Dublin. He met his fiancée and he was shot by Michael Collins' squad. And the story in the Gazette talks about how his fiancée tried to... um, would dealt with the situation of her fiancé being shot within feet of her. Basically executed in front of her. Executed by a bullet to, not quite a bullet to the, there was one bullet to the head and then another man, as they did, because they had two men to conduct the execution and then other men uh, to make sure that, you know, things went right. Uh, That's the way Michael Collins' squad operated and it was a, uh, tactical thing to do um, and I'll explain to you more about Michael Collins and the training etc um, but that was uh, a horrific experience for Alice Moore uh, Philip's fiance an absolutely horrific experience and when we come to talk about it later I'll talk about my maternal grandmother's feelings about the way that women uh, had none of the honour and the glory in the War of Independence. And in many cases, they've been written out of it. And what happened to them, what happened to the likes of Alice Moore, or, for instance, my my own grandmother, who would have been a first cousin of Philip O'Sullivan, her best friend was his sister. And you can only imagine what would have happened at the time if you tried to deal with circumstances where your first cousin was shot and his fiancée and you're trying then to um, console his fiancée who was literally just going about her daily business uh, obviously very, very concerned at the time uh, around the fact that her fiancée had joined the RIC was going to be targeted. There had been a warning that he was going to be targeted um, and because he was a West Cork man himself and would have known um, the situation down in West Cork and things that would have been custom and practice in West Cork, as I say in the article in the Gazette, the highways and the byways of West Cork, he was a target. And, you know, it's part of the War of Independence. That's, from my point of view, it comes back to what I said at the start. It's about talking about these stories so that people understand them and so the generations to come will know about what happened. Yeah, it's amazing that's over 100 years ago. And we were saying just before, uh, you know, we, we, we came on air, if you like, you never found out what happened to Alice Moore. No, I, in fact, for everyone who's listening to this podcast, Porrick has absolutely guaranteed and undertaken <laughs> that not only is he going to find out what's going to, or what happened to Alice Moore, but they're going to find out, uh, did she have any family? And we're going to trace her family because that's something I would dearly like to do is meet the descendants of Alice Moore so that they also uh, can understand what happened um, and they can also understand the whole circumstances of what would be there, be it grandmother or great-grandmother. And it's about telling these stories. It's about knowing the places we talk about Philip O'Sullivan and Philip O'Sullivan was given a military funeral, etc. The trauma that Alice Moore went through 
course. Uh, so I'm going to take you up on that promise. Yeah, we'll definitely, we'll definitely look into that. And it would be great if she did marry afterwards. And you know, what age was was he when he when he was executed? Twenty three. Twenty three. So she was probably of a similar age. So probably of a similar age. But let me put it this way: at the age of twenty three, there is a man who was a lieutenant in the Royal Navy, a qualified solicitor, engaged to be married. Anyone listening, what were you doing at the age of 23? You know, I know from my point of view, I was just leaving college at the time, um, had all these wonderful dreams, thoughts and dreams and plans, but I hadn't achieved anything even remotely close, you know, being decorated by the King of Italy. Um, all these kind of things. Mm. The age of 23... Such a young age and to be yeah, Absolutely. A, a, a war hero even at that stage. Yeah, sure. It's a tragic story. We'll definitely look into that and I'll come back to you on it because I say one of my colleagues, Porig Hogan, will absolutely love this and um, it's, it's, it's definitely worth kind of pursuing. Well, the, um, prom the promise has been made. Yeah, well, the promise yeah. has been made and, you know, <laughs> the pressure's on, but we'll, <laughs> we'll try and deliver. Um, let's talk about your maternal grandmother as well. She was the first one of the first female pharmacists in Ireland. That's that's the paternal oh, that's, grandmother. Oh, the paternal. The other side. We're oh, still on the paternal oh, oh, side of the family. Oh, 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 apologies. Yeah, hold on there. It's a, your, it's a complex your fam family. Your family tree. I'm going to be testing you on this family tree <laughs> later, Pork. Um, so, yeah, the um, Nanette O'Sullivan was my paternal grandmother and she was from Skibbereen and similar to... Uh, Dorothea Brown, who was the solicitor mentioned in the article and mentioned in the uh, qualification of 100 years of female solicitors, from Skibbereen, Nanette, my grandmother, became a pharmacist. And she was one of the first female pharmacists in Ireland. Um, there was three in her class in pharmacy that qualified together and were then able to uh, become pharmacists because of the uh, the change in the law back in 1919, which allowed women go into professions. So it's quite incredible that from a small town like Skibbereen, you had the first solicitor or one of the first solicitors and one of the first pharmacists, literally from almost the same street on Skibbereen, in Skibbereen. Uh, now, in pharmacy, my grandmother met her future husband, Valentine Carney, who was a uh, accomplished uh, cyclist at the time and uh, he studied and qualified as a pharmacist as well and they set up a pharmacy here in Dublin together and they had three small children they married they had three small children Val, Frank and John Val subsequently became a partner in Whitney Moore where his uh, son is a partner in Whitney Moore Michael um, and when Val was five his father Valentine Carney, the pharmacist, went into hospital for what was at that time a routine operation. However, uh, he got septicemia and he died, tragically, um, leaving my grandmother, uh, Nanette, with three small boys, Val, Frank and John. Frank being my father and John being uh, the father of another solicitor, uh, Maeve Carney, who works in Andrew McCann's practice in Dunleary. Uh, so Frank's godfather was a man called Eddie Brady and he ran coincidentally a pub on Henry Street three doors up from where Philip O'Sullivan was shot. Mm. 
Frank's godfather proposed to Nanette O'Sullivan, my granny, and they got married. So uh, my dad's godfather became his father. Stepfather, as it is. But yeah. We all called him Dad Brady or Granddad Brady. Um, and again, this comes back to the strange links in life and the strange situations in life where Nanette O'Sullivan from Skibbereen are linked to Henry Street and going in and out of her husband's pub in Henry Street, it was literally where the gunmen had sheltered in advance of shooting her first cousin. There's coincidence. And there's many coincidences as we work work through these stories. So Nanette uh, Brady at that point, she had four more children. Um, Mary, Pauline, George and Owen. And George became a senior counsel and his son, George Jr., is really a genealogist and historian in the family. He's the partner in Matson. He co-wrote the story in the Gazette with me. And so you can see there's, we were well before our time in terms of blended families. Sure. Um, and um, then there's a quite interesting situation that arose because you had the three, uh, what we will call Carney boys, um, Val, Frank and John, who by the time Val turned 11 and was going to secondary school, uh, Eddie Brady, their stepfather, uh, was very friendly with the Jesuits. He was an extraordinarily devout man. And he suggested to uh, the Jesuits that Val, his eldest step- stepson, would go to boarding school in Clongos in Kildare. So it was agreed that not only would they take Val, but because of the very close link between Val, Frank and John, they'd take all three boys. At such a young age. Was that normal at that time? Um, it wouldn't have been completely abnormal, yeah. but at the same time, you've got to imagine it from John's perspective. So John went to boarding school at the age of eight. Gosh. He repeated first year, I think twice, if not three times, and then repeated second year in order to become of an age um, that he went, went up through the rest of the school. Now, I know from talking to my dad and John is still quite happy to talk and meet all his friends from Clongos, etc. Um, the things like, you know, being able to play in the Junior Cup. My dad won the Junior Cup in his time. Uh, but the friends they made in Clongos and the ethos of that school uh, really bound them together. Uh, dad, my dad, left Clongos and he went to the novitiate to study to become a Jesuit. Uh, but... Fortunately for me, the Jesuits identified he wasn't going to be a Jesuit. (laughs) (laughs) We wouldn't be here today otherwise. No. So dad, um, he then left the Jesuits and went to UCD. Um, And he studied part-time and played rugby as much as he could. Um, So it was kind of as much rugby as possible. And obviously it was an amateur sport at the time. But he loved his rugby. Um, he worked part-time in the Tower Bar and met all these characters like Brendan Bean and RTE at the time used to be in the GPO, in beside the GPO. So he met all these characters and developed a great ability of storytelling and that kind of thing. And he studied medicine 
and he claims that um, he went on to study dentistry afterwards because uh, at the time, if you wanted to become a surgeon or a consultant in medicine, uh, you had to be, have been born into it. Um, but the rest of us all believe that he just wanted to continue playing rugby. And it was an opportunity for him to put himself through dentistry by working as a junior doctor and working in the Tower Bar and fund his own way through dentistry. Uh, so he became a dentist and um, he then met um, my mother who had qualified as a physiotherapist. And there's quite an interesting story which we probably don't have time for today. But my mother was over um, canvassing for JFK <laughs> in the 1960 election over in California. Now, he was pretty much a shoe in in California, so it was a fair enough place. But as part of her physiotherapy and her training, etc., she went over to America and ended up canvassing for JFK. So, and in fact, there's quite an interesting connection there as well. So my father's brother, Val, married my mother's sister, Margaret. And my dad was Frank and my mum is Ethna. Um, so you have two sisters then marrying two brothers. And um, that would kind of lead me towards my great-grandfather. So now that you've got some of the paternal side of the family, and I see you've been taking copious notes there, so <laughs> when I test you later, uh, looking at the maternal side of the family, I'm a Hughes, and the Hughes family in Mayo, um, or from Lank Hill originally, was where Owen Hughes was from. So you can see I've brought some various bits and pieces, um, but one of them I'm going to ask you to explain to people what you see here, which is a table mat. Sure. If you want to grab throw, throw it, grab it Oh, yeah, just throw it there, and then I'll tell you after we've thrown it and spilled Very it. Very interesting, right. Yeah, dropped it in the coffee. I, I don't know what shape you would call that, but it's definitely something you might put a lamp on, something like that. It's, I suppose, green, white, and yellow in colour. And, um, yeah. How old would you put that on? Crocheted, gosh. Fifty, sixty years. Now that you've been mucking around with it and trying to get the coffee stain off it, that's over a hundred years old. Is it? And my great grandfather was uh, interned without any trial in Frongoch in North Wales, along with his son and his brother Charles. His son was um, uh, Paddy, um, and. Frongoch was the internment camp in North Wales that um, the Republicans after 1916 were interned in. And it's a huge part of the story of Irish history to understand Frongoch and the rise particularly of Michael Collins. Um, because that's where Michael Collins, it was known as Old Skull Nerevoda, which is effectively... Uh, the university for the um, for the revolution. It was the guerrilla training that Michael Collins and the training in the army training. So you had men such as Charles Hughes from Westport, who was a draper. Um, you had 
his brother Owen, um, who was a farmer, and his son Paddy, who was equally just a farm young lad, uh, picked up by the RIC, the Black and Tans, the British military of the time, and without any trial, interned and placed together in um, effectively prisoner of war type um, facilities in North Wales. My grandmother remembers it very, very well um, before she passed away um, because she described the message that she had and the message that she had was very much how she as an 11-year-old, her father, her older brother were taken. They were held for eight months and the family didn't know initially where they were, what was going on, assumed that they were being sent to the trenches of France and that they were being sent over, you know, to fight as conscripts effectively in a war. Then found out, no, that's not what's going to happen. Uh, they're over in North Wales, but communication was very, very poor at the time. Of course. And that table mat, um, some of the activities that, as well as doing military drills and uh, playing GAA games, um, because that was, they, they, there was an Irish culture. Every man who was arrested and interned was very, very committed to the Irish culture and the Irish nationalism uh, and the whole ethos of the time. Um, on, on that side of the family, uh, we have a very nationalist and Republican background. And I'm just going to read you, if you don't mind, I'm going to grab hold of... Oops. Uh, the front of this book, which one of my cousins wrote about Charles Hughes, and read you some poetry. Because when you're talking about 1916, poetry is always quite good. Sure. Tis well to think that Ireland's call can gather still the leal and brave, for her to give their lives their all and win a soldier's nameless grave. Some day a worthier pen than mine their tales of noble deeds shall tell. In Ireland's heart their names shall shine. God rest them all. God rest them well. That poem, as you can see there, Frongook, 6th of November 1916, written by Charles Hughes in the uh, camp in North Wales. Wow. That's my great-grandfather's brother. Um, so Charles, Owen and Paddy were arrested. Paddy uh, very tragically died the following year uh, in a drowning accident in Westport. Uh, my grandmother was one of 13 children and her eldest brother um, and, you know, died having been interned in Frongok, uh, came back and literally in a, uh, an unfortunate tragedy in Westport Harbour, uh, died. And so it's a real story of uh, seize the day for everyone. You know, you never know what's around the corner. You never sure. know what's going to happen and uh, take your opportunities. So 
There is then, we're talking about the Hughes family. Can we just get you to name the book there for the interest of anyone who's listening? The interest of anyone that's listening, this is a book called Charles Hughes, Lank Hill to Westport, 1876 to 1949. And it was written by um, Harry Hughes, and I'm going to come and talk about Harry Hughes later. Um, But that's a real historian. I'm only a (laughs) part-time Um, and I'll leave the book on the Carney Brady's, etc., to George Brady. Um, but when you look at um, when you look at what happened, Charles Hughes was a draper. He ran a small drapery shop in Westport. It was regularly and repeatedly burnt out by the Black and Tans, and the sense of community that was developed and the sense of um, camaraderie that was developed amongst uh, the community kept that business going and the reason that that is important to our family I'm going to explain to you in terms of where it went and where the entire family went but we're talking here about a man who was very active in the GAA and was chairman of Westport Urban District Council for 16 years Um, and really developed as best he could, the uh, town of Westport. And uh, anyone who's listening who is familiar with Westport will probably have heard of the Hughes family. Um, And part of the reason that they will have probably heard of the Hughes family is two shops that they run, or two businesses that they run. Uh, One is a shop called Carrick Dunn. Um, Of course. And another is a business called Port West. And Port West is a global business. Yeah. Um, Very much so. And equally, anyone who follows Connacht Rugby will recognise Port West. But um, it's not just the businesses that I would like to focus on. I'll come back slightly to that. Uh, One of the documents I prepared for you here, as they say, I prepared something earlier. There's a picture there of Eight boys, uh, Pat, Vincent, Cahill, Richard, Declan, Seamus, Harry, and Owen, pictured in 1984. They, at that time, held the world record, the Guinness World Record, for the most siblings to run in a marathon. And they ran together in the Dublin City Marathon, uh, fundraising for charity. That world record was taken off the Hughes family by, obviously, someone who had more than eight siblings to run together. <laughs> Another Irish family. Yeah. Uh, well, we're not sure. I, I actually believe it was an American family. Right. So the Hughes family then went back and for the mental health charity On the Road Again, uh, 31 of the extended Hughes family, that's that same eight, but their own sure. children, etc. 31 of them ran the marathon uh, in... Uh, 2014, 10 years later, um, which is phenomenal um, fundraising for On the Road again. Um, And it kind of demonstrates uh, connectivity that the family have. Um, Then in uh, 2017, Westport House, uh, which you may have heard of, that was put up for sale. And the Hughes family decided, rather than let that fall into um, 
kind of investors' hands or the like to keep it as an amenity for the community in Westport. So the Hughes family bought that, maintained the employment that was there and maintained the amenity that was there. So this is where something that is just ingrained in them in terms of community and a sense of community and a sense of um, maintaining um, a continuity as well. So uh, two of them that I'd like to pay tribute to, one is Harry, uh, who I've mentioned earlier, he's the historian, Um, but he won the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year in 2017. He's the CEO of Port West itself. Um, And the judges in that were talking about how they were impressed with his clear thinking, his perseverance, his commitment to his team, community, and his humility. And anyone listening, I would say, um, that kind of uh, acknowledgement is something that we could all aspire to. Um, And Harry's brother then, um, Cahill, who's also involved with Port West, he was named Westport Man of the Year in 2019. Now, Cahill, um, um, or Person of the Year, sorry, um, Cahill was one of the founders of the Mayo Roscommon Hospice Foundation. And um, he also had his own personal tragedy, which is one of the things that I said I wanted specifically to talk about and yes. to ask everyone listening to this podcast to go out and buy and install in their home a carbon monoxide alarm. Cottle's son um, died absolutely tragically on Christmas Day 2008. In his bed, I believe. In his bed. Um, And they had built an extension and he died of carbon monoxide poisoning. Um, It is an awful, awful tragedy. You can imagine just having heard some bit of the connectivity of the Hughes family generally. And Port West is now a global company. Uh, Various members of the family are in all parts of the world. Um, The tragedy of, you know, Christmas, where people come home and for something as simple as a carbon monoxide alarm, and he campa- campaigned, didn't he? Saying like the all the years he'd been, he'd been, uh, he he was never advised that such a thing existed. I think at the time, wasn't that it? Correct. Yeah. Correct. And I just I read the article last night, just in, obviously in preparation for coming to see you today. But I believe his daughter as well was found unconscious in the in the adjacent room and and, and survived. Ca- came to thankfully and survived. So for anyone listening, you may think, and I brought in a. a carbon monoxide alarm to remind me and uh, to to show Porrick it is the simplest thing yeah it is available in any kind of a hardware shop and just buy one install it it's not difficult to install it literally you just put a battery in it and turn it on are they not compulsory these days when somebody installs they, they are compulsory for when you install things like, for instance, I have a stove at home and so they're compulsory to install with that. Right. But in older homes, they're existing, yeah. Correct. And likewise, 
you forget to turn them on or as happens with someone like me I pick them up to bring to a podcast meeting with Porter yeah. Crennan and I might forget <laughs> to put it back up again but the point is if nothing else buy one of these things put them in they can save a life they would have saved a life here yeah. you know yeah. um, and you know that's a message that I'd really like to pass on to people sure. um, if nothing else because in terms of looking back at community, in terms of um, ethics, in terms of ethos, when you look at Port West, Port West is running factories in Bangladesh, in uh, Ethiopia, and currently in Myanmar. And part of Cahill's award was, in fact, because he's involved in this company, where they are educating people and they're giving uh, opportunities to the factory workers and the families of the factory workers and you know when you think about the current situation in Myanmar and you think about how everyone else would walk away let's not get involved yeah but if you then go back to Ireland 1916 to 1921 and a small drapery shop being regularly burnt out mm. by the black and tans. And you start saying to yourself, what ethics did that build in a family? What family memory now lives there that Harry and Owen and Col have taken worldwide? Yeah. And in terms of diaspora, the ability for the Hughes family to have taken that worldwide, that's an incredible story. So I'm not going to continue to bore your listeners very long, but in terms of my own siblings and my own family, different yeah. ways, um, I'm only a solicitor who tries to keep going day to day. Most uh, of the people who will be listening to this will actually know my sister far better, Hannah Kearney, and the only reason that she hasn't yet been canonised is because having two brothers is not quite martyrdom. It might might sound like it. Uh, but Hannah is a superb person who was formerly a partner in McCann Fitzgerald and now uh, coaches, um, you know, various people in different law firms um, and is really one of those go-to people if you want to improve or understand how... Uh, how to manage yourself and your business and your life and well not so much your life she's not a life coach she's a business coach um, but she's not the best lawyer in the family uh, by a country mile we then have my sister Nula uh, who studied and became a dentist and then uh, decided that she was going to do in the same way that my granddad Eddie Brady uh, had gone back and he studied law when the pub uh, wasn't quite doing so well. Um, Nula Carney decided she was going to do a master's in law. And uh, I'm going to grab hold here her thesis. And she got first in her class in university. She got the award for the best um, student at the time, obviously a mature student, uh, but the best student, she was top in the university that year, 2018, when she got her master's. And her master's and her thesis 
is on the topic and as a dentist writing a legal master's, does Ireland need a statutory duty of candour? And that may not mean a lot to people when they hear the topic. But when you talk about a duty of candour, many lawyers, particularly litigation or medical legal lawyers, will immediately think of the cervical check scandal and the absence of candour in the cervical check scandal. And the reason that I say that Nula Kearney is the best lawyer in the family by a country mile is because this thesis formed the essence of many of the opposition questions in Doyle Aaron, putting pressure on the government to make sure there was a statutory duty of candour. And it's a very, very simple change in the law that was needed. A shall instead of a may. That someone may tell you something instead of someone shall tell you something. So if something has gone wrong with you medically, it took the whole cervical check scandal to change the law in Ireland that you now have a statutory duty of candour. And this was something that before the cervical check scandal, Nula was very passionate about. She said, no, doctors, dentists, etc. They must tell people if something is wrong, you say something is wrong. If we have done something wrong, you say we have done something wrong. If and tell me, Eamon, is, is, that, is that thesis available for people if they wanted to read it? Absolutely. Pub publicly? Um, it's, it's publicly available. All yeah. theses must be published. Right. Um, this particular one isn't because it's dedicated to me. Right. <laughs> where would people find that if they're interested in that? Well, it's Cardiff University where she did her Master's in Law. Um, I'm not quite sure how, but I'm sure online if you searched for LLM of 2018, um, Cardiff University, they have a very specific Master's in Medical Law which interested Nula. And um, it's an incredible piece of work um, setting out the legal uh, international concepts of the duty of candour, not just in other common law countries, but across the world in all types of law. So really, my hat off to Nula um, for being able to continue to run a dental practice five days a week, six days a week, as it sometimes is, and sit down and go back to college. And it's something I'll never do, um, even though I'm right beside the university here. <laughs> <laughs> so there we are. There's a bit of Shana Key for you. Well, I'm not well, sure what else there is to say. Well, I have to say, I commend you on, you know, your tribute to your siblings. It's it's lovely to hear um, you speak so highly of them and your entire family. Um, is there anything else we need to discuss before, before we, we, we wrap up? No, I think that's kind of it. If I could say to everyone listening, tell the stories. You know, I'm here. I want to tell my kids I love them. Tell your kids you love them. You never know the day that that might not happen. You never know when there might be a tragedy like Carl Hughes had where you're not able to say those kind of things. Sure. It's about talking where we're stuck in a world of email and stress and TikTok and text messaging and all this kind of thing. And quite often the kids only look at text messaging and, you know, it's all about talking. 
I'd love to be able to talk to my grandparents about the stories that they couldn't talk about. You can absolutely imagine why my granny, Nanette, could not talk about um, what happened in the War of Independence and the trauma that she must have had just walking down Henry Street. You know? And really, what I'd like to say to people is be willing to talk. Talk to each other. You know? And as we get ourselves through this pandemic, you know, that's part of it. Being able to talk, having friends, you know, such as Gary Lee, etc. Boy, he can talk. You know? (laughs) Well, Eamon, it's been an absolute pleasure. And um, by the way, I spoke with Stuart Galhooley last week, who's another friend of yours. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And I believe you joined Black Hall together. So um, we did an interesting chat with him as well. But okay. well, we, went, we went to UCD here beside us together. Right. And oh, there right. are many stories about Stuart that uh, Stuart would be glad to know I won't talk about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave those out. Yeah. Well, look... Eamon, we didn't talk about you at all. Very quickly, just talk about your no, practice. Talk no, about no, your pra- no, no, you don't want to talk no, about your practice, what there. you do. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, look, Eamon, once again, it's been an absolute pleasure. I appreciate you taking the time and thanks for joining us on The Legal Lunch. Thank you.